Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. Happy Wednesday, Secret Squad. I'm Robin McGraw, and this is a brand new episode of I've Got a Secret. Gail Smith has a very impressive resume. She has served as a top advisor on international issues for three American presidents and is one of the world's leading experts on global development and global health security. She recently served as the coordinator of global COVID response and health security, where she played a leading role in the U.S. effort to end the global pandemic. Currently, she is the CEO of the One Campaign, a global movement fighting to end extreme poverty and preventable disease by 2030. I am so excited to talk to this brilliant woman about her career, the incredible One Campaign, and some of the current issues we are facing as a country and a global community. This is the secret to coming together as one. So, Gail, oh, thank you so much for being a part of I've Got a Secret. I'm delighted to be here. Very, very happy. I would love for you to give the listeners a little background on yourself and how you first got involved in the work you currently do. And please take your time because it is so impressive. It's, thank you for that. I think I'm, I, I would say I'm, I'm very fortunate to have been able to do what I've done. And I have to confess it, it happened a bit by accident. This wasn't quite one of those things where in the third grade, I decided that this is what I wanted to do and, and pursued it. The short version uh, is that after I graduated from college, I traveled and every mile further I went down the road, the wider my eyes got. Uh, I spent some time in Egypt doing research for documentary film scripts but from there went to Sudan and I suddenly saw all of these things happen uh, that were not covered in the news. There were huge refugee flows. There were political debates going on. There were movements forming. There were wars. There were peace agreements. And I got quite interested in it. And I, I took a chance. I mean, I look back and think I was stark raving mad. But I reached out to the BBC, uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation, which in a lot of places in the world, BBC radio is what people listen to. It's accessible to anybody that's got a radio or now access to wireless. And I told them who I was, and I sent a story. Um, I was at the time playing a role as kind of a trainer at a local magazine in, at, uh, in Sudan. And they took a story. And so I began reporting for the BBC. Wow. Um, I was what's called a stringer. So I wasn't like one of their big famous reporters, but they would take stories from me, built that out to getting stories published in other outlets. So I worked as a reporter for many years. And during that time, <clears throat> I traveled in by foot with a lot of gorillas, like G-U-E-R-R, -R, not G-O. Yeah. 
into conflict zones in Ethiopia and in Eritrea. These are big wars, underreported wars. And I was able to report on those. And that was the time. And this is a long time ago, I think, for some of your listeners. For some of them, it may be too long. But this was in the mid-1980s when the biggest famine in recorded history took place in 1984 and 85. And it was shocking. I mean, it suddenly hit the world's airwaves. It was mass starvation. And there was a war in the middle of it. So I moved to working for some non-governmental organizations then because they were interested in having somebody who'd been in and out of these war zones. Anyway, that goes on. That was probably the most decisive moment in my life. I had not planned to join government. It isn't something I'd ever thought of. Um, And when President Clinton was elected, I was contacted by his transition team and asked if I would consider serving. I actually thought it was one of my friends playing a a joke. I was living in Africa at the time. I was like, yeah, right. Uh Uh-huh, sure. Uh, But it wasn't a joke. Uh, Talked to them. Didn't take the first thing that was offered had a further conversation down the road and thus began uh, a, a series of many years now that's involved. I worked for President Clinton in the last two years of his second term, the entire eight years of the Obama administration, uh, just went into the Biden administration temporarily at the request of the Secretary of State. But in between, I've always been an advocate and worked in or at nonprofits. Um, So it's kind of been, again, I've had the good fortune to be very curious, to have survived being very curious, uh, and to have had things put before me that were wonderful, extraordinary opportunities. So, you know, I think there's a lot of luck in that. Wow. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking about everything you're saying, and it started for you at such a young age. And is it true, though, that your curiosity and your your love of true world events and what's what was going on in the world. And I love when you said unreported events, major events that affected everyone that it was happening to, but it was unreported. I love that that's what was truly the driving force in what you were doing. I mean, in fairness, it was more recovered in Europe, I think, than in the States. But Uh the fact of the matter was, here I was, good education. Uh I'd been to college. I paid attention to world events. And there were things and dynamics unfolding of which I think I was shocked that I was too unaware. That was number one. I think the other thing, Robin, that really made a huge difference um, is seeing how kind of unfair the world is, right? Here I am. I've I've grown up safe and secure. I live in the United States. I find myself in the middle of a famine where people are also facing a war. And I concluded at that time, and it's something that stuck with me ever since, it cannot be that on the same planet that I could get on a plane and go to London or New York, and everybody would be acting as though it was normal. Uh-huh. When I could get on a plane and go the other direction, and millions of people were literally starving to death. There's something not right about that. Right. Right. There's right. just like that. That didn't work for me. So, um, 
yeah, I had the opportunity to try and help do something about it. And so I jumped at it. Wow. Do you ever look back over your life or even today and think, I was always where I was supposed to be? At one level, I think so, because it turned out really well. I mean, I'm very, I've always been able to do work that I love, Uh about which I'm passionate, where I feel real drive and conviction, and not everybody gets gets to do that. Um, It certainly has turned out that I was in a lot of the right places at the right time. Yes. I got that really strong feeling as you were speaking, because I feel that way about my life. I'm 68, 69 within a few months. And I can honestly say that I believe in God and I believe that there is a plan for all of us. And Mm -hmm. I never questioned that. And it's not only because of God, but I do believe as I reflect always on my life in a large majority of the time, I'm always where I'm supposed to be and doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And it sounds to me that when you were just telling us about how you got started, it's like, wow, you went through some pretty major scary events and you survived and you you persevered to be able to write the articles, to be able to be connected to the people you were connected to so that you could do what you were passionate about. I just felt too that you were where you were supposed to be and thank heavens you were. Well, thank you for saying that. I'll just add one thing to something you said. I you know, I did, I traveled in a lot of war zones. I was, it, it was a, some very insecure moments and places. The interesting thing is that I never really felt terrified. And part of it was that the people I was traveling with were very careful and wanting to make sure that I wasn't hurt. And they understood the dynamics of war at the time much better than I did. But also there's something, and I, and I suspect that major war correspondents would say the same thing. I mean, those that have done it for a lifetime only did it for some years, that it it becomes the reality, right? Everybody around you is living through this moment of violence and noise and threat and danger. And somehow when you're all in the same boat, there's a, I don't want to say that it's normalized, right? but you kind of bury your, fear, you focus very clearly uh, and try to make sure you and everybody around you is okay. Yep. It's a really interesting, because people always say, oh my God, weren't you terrified? And, I, I, and this is not bravado. This is not trying to be much. I, I actually wasn't terrified. I was focused like a laser. Right. There's an awareness you have to have that overrides yeah, just, fear. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. When did you become the CEO and president for one? So that was in, you know, with the pandemic, I'd have a hard time figuring out what year was what. That was in 2017. Uh, I had served the entire eight years of the Obama administration and uh, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Had always been a big fan of and a friend of the one campaign. And they said, well, what do you think about coming to run it? So I said, yes. And that was five years ago. Wow. I love that. I love that. Can you give the listeners a background on the One Campaign and why this foundation was founded? Sure. The One Campaign is a, it's a really interesting organization. When, we, when you described our mission, for example, I imagine most people would think, oh, well, we run programs, right? We, we put girls through school. We support small farmers. We, we do that in indirect ways. What we are is an advocacy organization, right? We're a campaign. So 
imagine a political campaign, but drop the politician and slot in the, the cause so that we campaign around the world. Uh, we're in North America, Europe, <clears throat> and Africa to try to get decision makers and leaders to make the right decisions on issues that will get us closer to ending extreme poverty and preventable disease. So it means campaigning for the world to do more on HIV and AIDS. We've been very focused on the pandemic for two years. It came about, uh, it was co-founded by a very determined activist and a very determined rock star named Bono of U2. Uh, back in the days where the big campaign at that time was on debt relief, the, the world's poor countries were just drowning in debt. And it meant that they were never going to be able to escape that burden and try to develop their country. So it started on that issue, worked on HIV and AIDS. And it's got a really smart strategy and, and technique. So as I say, we've been focused on the pandemic. We're still working on that, fighting to get more resources so that we can get more vaccines delivered even now. Uh, the global food security crisis, big focus through the fall on HIV and AIDS and getting the funding and support from governments we need to keep that on track. You know, you just mentioned Bono, and I, I'm glad that we have just this time to remind our listeners at what a phenomenal humanitarian that man is. I think maybe a lot of people don't know that. We moved out here 20 years ago from Texas so Philip could start the show. And when we were coming here, our youngest son, who's now 35, was 15. And when I brought him out here, Paramount invited us to be their guest at a at a benefit, and it was to honor Bono as the great humanitarian he was. And I'll be honest, I had no idea till that night. I sat there that night, and so many beautiful people, talented people, came out and performed and spoke on about him, about the unbelievable humanitarian efforts he had begun, he had started, he was involved in. And I was so blown away. So I love that that you just brought his name up so that we could just take a few seconds to remind all of the listeners out there that that man is not just a performer. He's not just an artist. He is the most amazing humanitarian towards efforts globally. No, he is. And he's, he's really committed to it. He's also really smart. Yes. Right. So he He's not only making the, the ask or urging people to do things, he understands the policies, the intricacies, uh, and he's still at it. And I've had the pleasure of knowing him for, I don't know, 25 years now. So he's a good one to work with. Yes, he is. He's brilliant. And it's a, he's a pretty damn good rock star, too. Yes, he is. Okay, so how are you able to get involved in the government matters of other countries? Try to do with governments is it's kind of what we think of as an inside-outside game, right? We want to put pressure on government to do the right thing. But I think I've found that it's certainly part of one's approach that just screaming at decision-makers doesn't necessarily get them to change their minds. Mm -hmm. So how do you put pressure on in a way that creates space and also captures the imagination? And one, we work a lot with talent and with artists, mm -hmm and pop culture. So we try to make sure that our public campaigns are different, clever, creative, sometimes a bit cheeky. 
But mm -hmm. we also try to have what we call an inside game where we talk to these governments all the time. And, you know, it's, it's often the case that in a government, when you're saying we want you to double the amount of funding you're putting into the fight against AIDS, for example, it's hard to do. They've got other pressures, but they're always champions inside a government who want to actually do it. And sometimes those champions are very near or at the top. So part of the inside game is sometimes working with them to say, how can we help you get this done? You know, we believe in this country, for example, uh, when I was in government, the one campaign was very good at tapping into the voices of literally millions of Americans who actually support this, but whose voices you need to hear if you're inside government and trying to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and sometimes they're very frank conversations with, with governments. We try to do two things is, is be very frank, but not stick our finger in people's eyes and register certainly disappointment when we think governments are failing to do what they need to do, but also to give them credit when they do the right thing. Uh -huh. What are the biggest threats to ending poverty that you're seeing? I would say the upside down world we're living in right now. I mean, look, everybody listening, uh, I'm sure knows it kind of feels like boom, boom, you know, it's just one thing and then it's another thing. Mm -hmm. So my biggest concern is that here we are, we're still in a pandemic. This pandemic is not over. That's right. Uh, we've got a very dangerous war in Europe, in Ukraine, that climate change. And for example, in East Africa, it, it, it's the most intense drought that's been seen in 70 years. Now we've got a global food security crisis. Prices are going up. It's like, okay, somebody stopped. And all these things coming together really, really put massive pressure on the world's poorest people, the low-income countries, low-middle-income countries. And it makes them more vulnerable. It means we could lose some of the progress we've made over the last 25 years. And that worries me. And it worries me that the world isn't paying enough attention. Because, you know, you said something at the top about we are all one or, or something. And I think, I really do believe that. And, you know, these, the world's poorest people are working people. They mm -hmm. work they certainly work harder than I do when I consider what they have to do to survive and what I'm able to do from where I sit. So it worries me that the world isn't paying enough attention to that and isn't coming together with that kind of unity and purpose that could steer us out of this, all mm -hmm. of us. Mm -hmm. There's too much division. You know, when we talk about the pandemic, and I'm glad you said we're still in the pandemic, so yeah. we need to make sure we don't forget that. We're still... We're still victims of the pandemic. We're still suffering from the Gosh. pandemic. And one thing that really, to me, stood out and still stands out to me because of the pandemic, I noticed, and I hope, I always thought, well, I hope the world, I hope everyone is, our country is noticing, at least because of this pandemic, when news programs or specials would air, we got to at least see a glimpse of the American family and what they're all, we're all going through when, with, yeah. with two parent working households, with children who are trying to have, get an education, the struggle everyone was going through. It, it was like yeah. trying to, trying to still continue their education, but still continue mom and dad getting to keep their jobs and work full time. And it was a struggle. It really affected our country and it's still happening. We're still struggling. 
I think that's right. And I, you know, in many ways it's very real, but it's also a bit of a blur. When I think back to the first year and, and when we were seriously locked down, mm-hmm. uh, washing our hands 40 times a day and not touching anything and not really seeing anybody. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the variant we're looking at now is milder, particularly if you're vaccinated, but the virus is still spreading. Mm-hmm. One of the things we've got to understand is that all a virus needs is places to spread and mutate and get stronger. So it's still, it's still a risk. And as you rightly say, we are still seeing what we call the aftershocks. Yep. And in, in the world's poorest countries, you know, that means that countries' incomes have fallen by half. It means that there isn't, in many cases, the wealth as hard as it was for many of us to bring kids home to school and educate them because not everybody's got wife. That's right. Uh, so it's done huge damage. And, and it may be better, I think, particularly here and in the world's wealthier countries, but it's not over. It's not over. No, it's not over. And we're going to see the, the young adults, the young children suffering from it for years to come for years to come because of their yeah. education, the, the stress and the worry they saw in their parents. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, this is a, it's a truly historic event. I yes, mean, this is. is one that people will talk about for decades. Yes, it is. One campaign very recently published a five-step plan to end the COVID-19 crisis. I'd love to hear how you see the future unfolding. Here's the deal. This is a global pandemic, right? This border or this virus doesn't care about borders, doesn't have a passport, doesn't care if it's in the United States or Vietnam or Kenya. All it wants is to move around and go faster than we are. So the the plan that we have put out is basically the five things that need to happen so that we can shut this down globally. Because if you think about how it started, it doesn't work to just say, well, we've ended it in the United States because this this virus, other viruses could come back in the same way it initially came in. So our what we're proposing is everything from upping the delivery of vaccines. One of the tragic realities of what I spoke about before, that the world is too divided and hasn't quite come together the way it needs to, is that vaccination coverage, for example, is 70 to 75% of the world's wealthy countries. In the world's poorest countries, it's below 14%. That's that's not fair, but it's also not smart. So what we've done is called for a series of actions that we think uh, could bring an end to the pandemic and set the stage for our being better prepared in the future. Completely agree. What was your role as coordinator for global COVID response in health security? So that was a role at the State Department. And one of the things I think it's important for listeners to, to understand, and I saw this when I was you know, the administrator of USAID, but also I've, I've seen it in my travels throughout. The fact that the United States is a very generous country, uh, that we are most of the time the leaders in responses to global crises. You know, I think we do that. It's in our interest to do that. But I think it's also an expression of our values. Um, that means a lot to the rest of the world in in ways that you can't always measure, right, directly, but in ways that really count. And in this case, I think there was a 
lot of hope and a lot of determination by this administration that the U.S. get out there and lead. So I was asked by the Secretary of State to come in and initiate the global response out of the State Department. Um, my main focus there was on two things. One was that the United States uh, has shared a lot of vaccines. Early in the pandemic, we bought a ton of vaccines. Like, you can't even imagine how many vaccines. More vaccines than we actually needed. Uh, there was a great desire to make sure that every American who wanted a vaccine could get a vaccine. We ended up with a surplus, which I think was always known. And so I was able to work with the White House team and people from other agencies to basically build a system whereby the U.S. Uh, has delivered vaccines now to over 100 countries. Wow. Um, we procured a billion vaccines for the rest of the world. Oh. Now, we still need, a, if I can do a plug, we still need some resources for Congress to make sure, you know, it's not enough just to drop vaccines off at an airport. You got to help people get those shots in arms. True. So that was one focus, was the immediate response and how do we how do we deliver vaccines? And it's actually really complicated. You don't just put them on a plane. They've got to be regulated, cared for in specific ways. And the other was on something you mentioned, which is global health security, which in a very short definition, all that means is making sure that we are prepared and that we can ideally prevent viral threats like COVID has proven to be, that we can detect them early on and that we can respond so that we don't have to go through this again. That's what global health security is. So it was working with the State Department to put it in the secretary in a position to really lead on getting us further down the road on that. Wow. Thank God you're there. <laughs> That's all I can say. That's what I'm thinking right oh, now. thank you. Was a lot it, of good people working on it. Uh, what was it like being on the inside during such an insane time for our world? Well, the weirdest thing was sometimes I wasn't on the inside. I mean, even uh -huh. the government face the challenge of not wanting to have everybody in a crowded place. True. Because by the time I joined uh, the State Department, vaccines had just started to become available. So I know about the rest of you with those listening. You know, I, like everybody else, was on a list here in the District of Columbia that I would get a, an email when I could go get in line. Because uh, the early days... You know, they, they're not as many available as they are now. So even the government at that time was not, not everybody was working out of offices. And uh, this was my third time in public service. I had never worked in government where I worked from home. So that was one of yeah. the challenges. Look, I think the, the hardest thing uh, was that the world is volatile right now. There's a lot of crises. This is one that I think many of us expected would happen at some point, but it's kind of unimaginable. Mm -hmm. And the pressure of that uh, on top of everything else going on in the world, it, it was a lot. Yes. And we should be very, I mean, you're very kind to say nice things about me, but we should be very grateful for the people in public service who are in there trying to work these things on behalf of all of us. It's yes. tough. Bravo. Yes, I totally agree with you. Because I think a word that just came to me to describe it, it's paralyzing. When you think about going through it again, it, it's scary. It's just very scary. 
and it was, I think the thing that was paralyzing about it is none of us knew where this was going. Like you couldn't, you couldn't imagine what the other end of the tunnel looked like. That's um, so true. But I think one of the things we've all got to remember, and this is hard, because it's very easy, but I think for many of us, it feels like it's easing. So, phew, well, that's over and move on to the next thing. That's why this global health security piece is so important. Because if, while it is fresh in our minds, we need to make the investments we need so we don't have to do it again. And it's a whole lot cheaper. You know, didn't your mother ever say to you an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? Exactly. It's totally true. Totally true. So we need to invest now to make sure that we don't have to have a repeat. Because I'm pretty sure there's nobody who'd like to do that again. That's exactly right. You're so wise. The other arm of the One Foundation is RED. This is such yeah. a cool organization. Can you talk about its mission? Yeah. RED was uh, another creation of Bono along with Bobby Schreiber. And it's a really simple idea, but it's a really smart one. The idea was to take products, ideally iconic products, uh, turn them red, right? Red being the color of heat, and have arrangements with their producers so that a portion of the price of that item would go to the fight against HIV and AIDS. So I remember in the early days, the Gap had red Uh t-shirts that would have the word inspired with the last three letters in parentheses. So always having red. There's a red iPhone. There is a whole red page on Amazon. During the holiday season, you can buy all sorts of red projects. And what it's been able to do, Bank of America goes red for for us, is it's good for companies to do, Uh right? It's a a good look for companies to say, we're doing our bit in the fight against AIDS. It raises money. They're cool products. Yes. You know, the first thing I bought was a red iPod. That was iPods are now dead, but back in the day. So red remains really, really active. It's been active throughout the the pandemic. And this is a big year on the HIV and AIDS fight. So it's going strong. Wow. I don't know how I missed it because I always associated the reason that they called it red or it's called red and everything turned red was because I associated red with love. I think that's fair. Red is the color of love, it's the color of heat. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's it's bold, uh-huh. right? It's like red is an in-your-face color. For it's whole perfect. It was perfect. And, and I love that campaign. Well, it's great. And it's it's a it's a color that has raised literally hundreds of millions of dollars oh. for the fight against HIV and AIDS around the world just by turning products red. Oh, I love it. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. You know, that's a perfect segue to go to something I deal with every podcast since the first podcast. I decided when I created the podcast, I'm going to do two things. One is the drink of the day. So because we're doing this virtually, I can't hand it to you, but we create a drink of the day for every podcast. This this drink is called Seeing Red. And of course, you can tell by looking that I'm holding our inspired drink for this podcast. Inspired by your organization, Red, I have created a beautiful ruby red cocktail that is equal parts refreshing and delicious. So this one is created with two ounces of gin, two ounces of pomegranate juice, one half ounce of lemon juice, one quarter ounce simple syrup, and three rosemary sprigs, sparkling water, To make this drink, you muddle the rosemary in a shaker. You add the ice, and then you add all the other ingredients. Give it a shake and strain into a coupe glass. Garnish with rosemary sprigs like mine. So in your honor, this is the drink of the day. That's great. I I love that it's called Seeing Red. Seeing Red. In your honor and for that organization. So cheers to you. And because I said cheers, I'm taking a sip. Oh, love it. That's our drink of the day, listeners. And if you want to see the drink prepared and you want the recipe and how to make it, you can go to I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com and we'll have all of that there for you to enjoy. Okay, so I imagine that the Ukraine conflict has created even more chaos and uncertainty, sadly, when talking about a unified global response and cooperation. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that we are doing the right thing on Ukraine. We should all be standing in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. And you can't just go invading other countries and bombing them to smithereens. I mean, you just can't. That's just not on. And that's we've true. all got to stand against it. I think the, the challenge is that that is going on and there are lots of other wars, and there's the, the risk with this global food security crisis, there's a risk of 49 million people are at risk of starving to death. Ugh. The pandemic's not over, and so I think the, the challenge is how do we do all these things at, at once? And, you know, I've, I would never, and we would never suggest a trade-off. We should do less for Ukraine so we can do more for others. I think we've got to increase what we're doing around the world, and I think we've got to get better and smarter at helping the American people understand why it's important to do that. 
And it's really important to do that. I love that. I agree. You seem to have such a clear understanding of the world and how to navigate these dense issues. What have been some of your most impactful learning experiences? And I'm talking specific mentors or curriculum that really helped you step into who you are today. I think there've been two big learnings for me. One was serving in government. I had never imagined it, but, but you know, I think you always kind of think of the government as something that's automatically there. Right. Right. What you realize when you go into it is the government is just made up of people Mm -hmm. and it's as good as we make it. And I think understanding that fundamental and then seeing how the government works. And there's some some areas where it works really, really well. There's some areas where it's really, really constrained. Um, But I think learning how it actually works as opposed to it being an abstraction. has made a huge difference. It's made a huge difference, say, to the work I'm doing now. I understand how decisions are made. Uh, it's also, I will say, underscored to me the importance of public service and something I hope other people will pursue. So I think getting an education while actually working in government, it's like, whoa, this is, you know, my first, my, my first, uh, administration, I learned something pretty much every 15 minutes that I didn't know about how governments work. I think the other thing, and I and I don't want to romanticize this, but it's actually true, is that, you know, I said earlier that the, the world's poorest people are working people. There's a, there's a tendency, I think, to sometimes assume that people who are living in acute poverty are passive, right? And they're just waiting for somebody to feed them or help them. That's actually not true. And I think learning from them, traveling in a lot of areas, living in a lot of areas that are extremely poor, uh, learning what the world looks like from that perspective, learning where dignity comes from, seeing seeing that I would be in places that are poorer than anything you could ever imagine. And people were more generous in sharing whatever food they had with me. I'm coming from the, well, like with me. Then sometimes I find that we are amongst ourselves and it's kind of those profound lessons um, that I think have made the biggest, the biggest difference. Wow. I understand that. Just very recently, Philip did a show on the homeless and we visited a homeless camp and Everyone in that camp were the hardest working, most loving family members who, because of the pandemic and unfortunate situations, found themselves living out of their cars or small cramped camping trailers. But they had come together and they were helping each other. They were so lovely and and good-hearted, hardworking people. And they did admit that people look at them like they're lazy. They were. I think I I know, and I I think it's you know, look, poverty and homelessness is not a choice; it's a circumstance. Exactly. I think. I mean, and and yes, there are also lots of cases, and I'm sure you all looked into this, uh, where mental health is one of the drivers. But yes, you're, you're right about the pandemic. The number of people who suddenly lost their jobs had nothing to fall back on. That's right. 
I think we've just got to remember that because the worst mm-hmm. thing we can do is sort of objectify. Exactly. People say, oh, well, they're lazy. I, it's just simply not true. It's not true. And they're, they're all working so hard to get a step up. And one thing I noticed it really touched me is that they had this area, they had this site to all come together because of one gentleman who donated the area. So it does make a difference when you can help, step up and help. Absolutely. So let me ask you, when you're not saving the world, what are some of the other hobbies and passions that you have? Uh, I like to actually read books that are not about poverty and disasters. I made a ton of pillows during the pandemic. (laughs) Well, I had to do something, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, And I really like, I mean, the thing I, I try to do when I'm on vacation in the summer, I take the weekend off. Uh, And that my family's always done is fishing. I love going fishing. Yes. Kayaking, those kinds of things. And just, you know, look, one of the things that when I was in the Obama administration, you know, those are jobs where you work from seven in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. You don't ever see anybody except your colleagues. So having the opportunity now to actually see people as the, the pressures of the pandemic have eased, um, that's the thing that makes the most difference. And then I rearrange the furniture all the time because I really like interior design. <laughs> oh, I think you and I would be the best of friends because that is one of my fun things to do. I'm a real homebody. I don't, uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm not a big goer. I love to be at home and I love just to do things in my home and I love interior decorating. But what I really love to do and have done since the moment Philip and I had our first home, we were, we're about to celebrate our 46th wedding anniversary. So I've wow. been doing this for a long time. And the joke is he would come home and go, am I in the right house? And I would do it in our first little tiny apartment, but I love to rearrange furniture. <laughs> yeah, there's, I, don't, I think it's, I think I've always thought of it is when you can't control anything else, you can control where the furniture is. That's so true. And, and I'm really small, but very strong for my size. So he would come home and I'd have like this big armoire moved from one side of the room to the other. Very creative. I'd figure out how to do it. And he'd go, okay, who came over today and helped you move this? I'm like, I did it all by myself. He's like, right, right. And so it was always hilarious. And he'd go, where's my chair? Where's my chair? But I love to rearrange furniture. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's so fun. So I'm just curious, if you weren't doing what you're doing today, what profession do you think you would have? What would you want? I say I used to, when I was in high school and college, I used to sing a lot. You know, those goofy bands you have in high school and college and things like that. So I would love to sing. Oh, I love that. Um, I I think I would always want to have the privilege, because in many ways it is a privilege to do something that makes a difference and uh-huh. makes the world better. I love that. I love that. Um, Entertaining with song is a beautiful thing, I think. Yeah. I, I don't think you should necessarily invite me to do that, but it's a nice aspiration. Yeah. <laughs> so is there anything exciting coming up on the horizon that you'd like to share? On our side, I mean, I, I think the, the exciting, the urgent things for us uh, 
right now are still the, the pandemic and where the world's going to go on this. We need leaders to come together. And I've mentioned HIV and AIDS a few times. Yeah. There's a fantastic international effort through the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and malaria. Every three years, they it's like capitalizing an investment fund. They The world puts more money into it and we save more lives and get closer to actually ending that epidemic. So that's a huge focus for us over the coming months. Cause that's, you know, you look at where we were on AIDS 10, 20 years ago, that's an epidemic. I think we are going to be able to end and we've made amazing progress, but we can't drop the ball now. That's wonderful. I mentioned earlier that we do two things in every podcast and we've come to the point where it's time to do our second consistent thing for the podcast. It's called the game of the day. Do you like playing games? So long as it's not <laughs> trivia because I embarrass myself. Well, I always create a game for each podcast. And this okay. game is called Wonder Woman. And I spell wonder, O-N-E dash D-E-R. Wonder Woman. Oh, that's very good. Thanks. <laughs> In honor of you. So we're doing a superhero-themed family feud game today to honor all of the hard work you've done for the world. Now, I'm going to read off a question about superheroes, and we both have one chance to say what we think is the number one answer as answered by 100 participants. And I want you to know I've not seen this game. My staff created the game and they've created the question, so I have not seen it. Okay. So, okay, the first question. 100 people were asked, name a piece of clothing that you would not expect to see a superhero wearing. So, Gal, what do you think the number one answer was? You go first on this one. I'll go first okay. on this one. I'm going to say... Uh, I would not expect to see a superhero wearing uh, spike heels. Oh, that's good. I would not expect a superhero to be wearing a hat. Good answer, too. But the number one answer I'm seeing here are jeans. And do you know what the other answers were? Speedos. What? I guess because it involved men. Speedos, socks, and sandals. Crocs. How funny. Okay, yeah. number, number two. Name something you'd be surprised to find that a superhero can't do. You want me to go first? Yeah. I'd be surprised to find out a superhero cannot leap tall buildings. In a single bound? In a single bound. <laughs> uh, I, I think in the same vein, I would say fly, you know, without a plane. and. Okay. Uh, you get it. You won. Fly is the number one answer. Uh, fight and lift heavy weight are the other answers. You got that one. Okay, number three. Name something that a superhero might not have time for. Uh, they may not have time for cleaning house. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Yeah, I was going to say laundry. Okay, good. Let me look and see. The number one answer is dating, watching TV, sleeping, and, oh, family, housework. <laughs> okay, so next one. Here's another good answer. Name a superhero that doesn't fly. 
I thought all superheroes fun. I do too. I do too. So I'm going to have to say, you know who I'm thinking of? Robin, Batman's sidekick. Robin didn't fly? I, I don't know, but I don't think so. I think I don't was, think Robin flew. Let's both say Robin. Uh, the yeah. answer is Spider Man. Spider Man went. Well, because Spider Man has those suction. Feet. Yes, and he threw the spider webs. Okay. Oh, and the other answers are Batman. Now, Batman flew. Flash, Wonder hey, Woman. Batman, Batman had that car, the Batmobile. Oh, shoot. You're right. You're right. Okay. Name someone who wore a cape but was not a superhero. Oh, I know that one. Queen. Zorro. Oh, Zorro. You're dating yourself, but that's a good answer. I know. Who else? The Queen. Yes, you're right. The answers, number one answer, Dracula. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, oh, Zorro, Elvis, Elvis, Sherlock, and the Pope. Okay, this is the last one. Which superhero would you trust the least to watch your children? Okay. Who's a mean superhero? I guess Spider-Man. Yeah, I, I would say Spider-Man or the bad guys in uh, Batman, Penguin. Penguin, Penguin. That's a good one because I don't want them scaring my children. Okay, so the number one answer is Incredible Hulk because they might squish them. <laughs> The Good. other one. I may not be as schooled in superheroes as I need to be. Yeah. Uh, Wol the other answer is Wolverine, Batman, and Spider Man. I think you won. <laughs> I think it's a no, I, I think it was a it was a match, but I, it's a very clever I, I love the name of your game. Thank you. Thank you. Well, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this beautiful, amazing episode. Before we wrap yeah. up, though, I have one more question for you. Sure. I started this podcast to share life-changing secrets that we have all learned throughout our lives. Do you have one major secret that you've learned that you'd like to share with the listeners? Sure. And, and I don't know if it's a secret, but it's a tip that has served me well. Love. Someone once said to me, talk to people where they are, not where you think they should be. <gasps> I love that. And it's really, really hard, right? Because yes. we all have strong opinions and I know what you should think. Yes. I love but that. You know what I should think. But if, if particularly at a time when, when there is so much division, uh -huh. talking to people where they are rather than where you think they should be will probably get you a lot further. It really works. That's beautiful. I love that. It's so true. Thank you. You know, I have to say this again. I think you're brilliant. And this has been a wonderful experience to sit here with you. And I thank you so much. Can you now please tell the listeners where to find you and the One Campaign? Sure. Go to one.org or just Google One Campaign. And again, we're all over the world. And it's very easy to join us. One thing I want to make sure people understand what we're asking for is your voice. We're not asking for your money. So join us. The more voices we can marshal and put together, the more good we can do for the world. Oh, fantastic. That is just fantastic. And Secret Squad, head over to I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com for an insider look at this episode. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.